Our scripture text this morning is in the book of Malachi. We'll be uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll be reading down through chapter 3, verse 4. So we'll be starting in Malachi uh, chapter 2, verse 17. The prophet Malachi writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this to the nation of Judah. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord Offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now, as we consider these few verses this morning, we will do so under under two main headings. First, don't weary the Lord. And secondly, receive the messenger of the covenant. Don't weary the Lord. Receive the messenger of the covenant. Of the covenant. During the one year that I taught a class of seventh graders, most of my teaching time was spent with tenth grade, but one year I taught also one class of, of seventh graders. And I remember that there was one student in that class that I would call out from time to time for talking in class or being disruptive or something along those lines. And her reaction was, was really something to see. It was, it was something like this. And I don't remember her ever verbalizing what her body language was saying. But if she were to have done so, she would have said that she was communicating something like, What did I do? Why are you pointing to me? What's the deal? And if you read the book of Malachi, if you read it, those four short chapters, you get the sense, maybe, that in the dialogue that the prophet Malachi presents has taken place between the people of Judah and the Lord, that the people of Judah were acting very much like my seventh grade students. And we, we see one instance here in, in verse 17. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And the people are like, how have we wearied the Lord? And, and you see this again and again in, in the book of Malachi. Just, just look with me up to, to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father... Where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. Same thing. And again, look down to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You see this, the same kind of dialogue going on. Will a man rob God? 
yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Again, look down to to chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And so we have some some samples here that give us a sense of the, the atmosphere in which Malachi was prophesying and a sense of the people to whom he was prophesying. And of course, uh, the, the prophet Malachi comes during the, the time of the, the restoration from, from exile. The people had been in Babylon those 70 years. They had come back. The temple uh, had been rebuilt during, uh, during the days of, of Ezra, the wall around Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah. But yet, all was not well in the lives of the people of God. And Malachi uh, clearly hones in on that. Now, with respect to their outward disposition, I think we could say they were conducting themselves in perhaps a more orthodox fashion than many of their forefathers. At least we don't get the sense that the people of Judah were, uh, were uh, up on the, the high places, offering sacrifices to the Baals. They were maintaining the worship of God in the place that he had chosen at the temple. So we don't get the sense that they're involved in, in gross idolatry, as Judah had been during the days of their degeneracy before the exile to Babylon. And so the people may have, in fact, learned something. But nevertheless, Malachi makes it clear that all was not well in Judah. While there may have been outward conformity to at least some aspects of the worship and service of God, they were not anywhere close to complete conformity, complete outward conformity, and much less were their hearts and attitudes in submission to the Lord. The picture that Malachi presents of the nation is one in which hearts... And internal attitudes are actually in rebellion to the Lord. And despite whatever measure of external conformity to the prescribed worship in the temple that they were rendering, the internal attitude, the condition of their heart showed themselves in many external ways uh, by their behavior, as inward dispositions will always show themselves eventually in external behavior. As our Lord had said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so all was not well here in post-exile Judah. And here in our text, we find that the people are wearying to the Lord with their words. They ask, how? How are we wearying you? And the Lord says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where's the God of justice? Now, what's, what's going on here? I think given all that we can see from this picture of what's going on in Judah that Malachi uh, gives us a window into which we can look at the situation and it seems that the people of Judah felt driven to this conclusion by their experience that everyone who does evil is, is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And where's the God of justice? We're not seeing him. And they seem, I think, to feel that they are following God Though they weren't, they think they are, and then they act surprised when things don't end up going too well for them. Something bad happens to them, their body language is like that of my seventh grade student. They're like, what? What what do we do? They can't understand 
their circumstances because they don't understand that even though there's a measure of external conformity to the law, they're not actually pleasing the Lord by their behavior, much less by their hearts. And again, we, we saw in, uh, in looking through a few, a few samples, we, we see that the people were of the opinion that they were doing what they ought to have been doing, and so now they can't understand why God was not blessing them. Why are things going bad with us? We're at the temple, we're offering sacrifices, we're doing at least some of what we ought to be doing. Why, is, why are things going bad for us? Well, they were wrong in their assessment of the situation. And therefore, external circumstances were not working out too well for them. The Lord says, chapter 3, verse 9, You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And thus, in their hard-hearted confusion, they were reasoning as they were thinking. It is as if they're saying, here we are, working hard to serve God, maintaining the sacrifices at the temple and so on, and yet God is not blessing us. It is vain to serve the Lord. And if our experience is anything to judge by, then it must be the case that, in fact, everyone who does evil is good, because here we are doing good and bad things are happening to us. And our lives are miserable. Surely it must be the case that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord because the Lord sure doesn't delight in those of us who are following after him. Now granted, they weren't following the Lord nearly as closely as they thought. But nevertheless, that was their self-deceived perspective. And then, in a tone of perhaps scoffing, perhaps being accusatory, perhaps being self-righteous or some combination, they ask, where is the God of justice? They knew that the Lord was supposed to be a God of justice. But from their perspective, they weren't seeing it. As far as they could tell, the Lord was not executing justice and was behaving toward them in an unjust manner. Now, maybe that's a question that you have asked sometimes. Where is the God of justice? This is an ancient and perennial question, isn't it? We see evil and wickedness in the world, And sometimes, perhaps even often, it looks like the righteous get the short end of the stick in this world and the wicked triumph and get all the good things here in this world. And people wonder in all of that, where's the God of justice? Now, if you're one of those who have asked this question, allow me uh, to point out to you this morning that there is a, a right and godly way to ask this question and there's also a sinful and wicked way to ask the question. There's a way to ask the question in humility and faith. This is what David did in Psalm 13. Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? You can hear that David maybe didn't say expressly, Where is the God of justice? But he's he's wondering and he's asking a question that is at least running along a parallel track. And likewise, the saints in heaven, they ask a similar question, Revelation 6.10. They say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? Both David and those saints in heaven rightly sensed that something was wrong, that justice was not being enacted. And they prayed about it. They poured out their hearts to the Lord about it. They cried out to him. But in doing so, they maintained faith, they maintained humility, they maintained reverence. Not so these people in Malachi's day. 
They, rather, are speaking things that are wearying to the Lord. They come right out and say it, that the one who does evil is good, and the Lord who delights in him. And they ask then in a scoffing manner, where is the God of justice? Where is he at? He's not showing up. Many of you, I'm sure, remember the experience of Asaph in Psalm 73 as he wrestled with this very question. And Psalm 73 kind of shows his progression as he dealt with the question, and he looks back on how he dealt wrongly with this question. Psalm 73, 21 and 22, he says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In this respect, people of Malachi's day were a lot like Asaph at his worst, if not actually worse than Asaph was. They were senseless and ignorant, acting like beasts before the Lord. And so Christian friend, remember that there is a right way to grapple with the injustices that we see around us or that we experience in ourselves. There's a right way to grapple with these, a right way to pour out our hearts in prayer to the Lord, and there is also a wrong way. The right way is the way of faith, patience, and humility, and reverence before the Lord. The wrong way to respond is this way of scoffing that we see here, and this way of of drawing false conclusions from your experience. The thing that we would all do well to remember is that our feelings, as we walk through this world, our feelings are not the arbiter of truth. Just because it may seem that, based on appearance, God delights in the wicked... And just because it may seem that the God of justice will never rise up and establish justice, that does not mean that he never will. Our feelings are not not the arbiter of truth. God is truth. Just because you feel like you're getting the short end of the stick, that's no excuse for you to act like a senseless and ignorant beast before God and man. Such behavior and its accompanying words, as we see here, are wearying to the Lord. It's not reverent. It's not worshipful. And so, friends, let's all learn a lesson from these people here. For one, let's learn a lesson about reverence and our need to wait upon the Lord. I know we like to get situations resolved right away. Telephone, uh, wireless, internet, right? We love quick, right now. Heat it up quick. Just punch it and put it in the microwave. Heat it up in a minute. Why why are you bothering with the stove, right? And so we, we want things quick, but... We need to learn to wait upon the Lord. And we need to acknowledge that we ourselves are often ignorant. Sometimes we're ignorant about the sins for which we are being chastised. These people here were very clearly being chastised for their sins. And they're like, what are we doing? God, we're, we're serving you. Why, are you. why are you chastising us? And sometimes we are ignorant of the Lord's purposes and plans. And God's plans for his people are good. He doesn't call us to understand our circumstances so much as to trust him and continue to hope in him, come come what may. And so when we suffer, let's never accuse God of wrongdoing, but rather let's be humble enough to recognize that we ourselves could be in the wrong. We could be. Consequently, we could be receiving discipline from the Lord when difficulties come upon us, though not always, right? Sometimes when you are innocent in what you suffer. When you are, you need to remember that we can't accuse God of wrongdoing. I think this was this is where Job got into trouble, and uh, Job suffered. He didn't suffer because he had sinned, but in his suffering, 
That's when he sinned. His great suffering that the Lord brought upon him led him to accuse the Lord, to meddle into things that were, that were too deep for him. And I think that's, uh, I think that's the message of Elihu there towards, towards the end of the book of Job, is that, is that he says, Job, in your suffering, you've sinned. And so we need to, to learn that lesson from the book of Job. And we have to understand that we must never accuse the Lord of wrongdoing and recognize that whatever we suffer, whatever comes to us, ultimately serves God's purposes. We don't have to understand those purposes in the moment. Job certainly didn't understand the purposes of God when he was suffering. But what we do have to do is to maintain a reverent fear of God. We have to remember who he is, the sovereign, the creator, the God who has saved us and ultimately has our best interests at heart. And we have to remember who we are. We're his creatures. If we're in Christ, we're his people. And we must submit to him and never second-guess him in our suffering, as these people were doing. Remember, there's a right way to grapple with the problem of injustices that we see. There's a wrong way. That brings us into our second point, which is to receive the messenger of the covenant. We see this in the way that the Lord responds to these wearying and whining people here in chapter 3. He announces to them there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, this coming of the messenger of the covenant. The Lord himself would come to them. But first, there was going to be a messenger. Let's, let's look at verse 1. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we need to pay close attention to what is said here, because first, there was to be the sending of a messenger who would prepare the way before the Lord. And then that messenger would then be followed by the Lord, who is called here the messenger of the covenant. So there's actually two messengers that are spoken of here in verse 1. First is the messenger who prepares the way. Second is the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. And it's noteworthy, I think, that right near the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, that Mark quotes from Malachi 3.1 in combination with Isaiah 40, verse 3, to speak of the ministry of John the Baptist. He says, As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. It's quoting from Malachi 3.1. Then from Isaiah 40, verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then the very next thing that Mark says after that is, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And moreover, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us specifically that this prophecy was about John the Baptist. He says this in Luke 7, 26 and 27. He says, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And so... Mark chapter 1, verse 2, Mark quotes from Malachi 3.1, applies it to John the Baptist. Luke 7, 26 and 27, Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, applies it to John the Baptist. There's no question then about the identity of this messenger who prepares the way for the Lord. It's John the Baptist. And so how did John do this? How did he do this task of preparing the way before the Lord? The angel Gabriel explained this to John's father, Zacharias, before John was born. 
Luke 1, 16 to 17, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was the way that John was to prepare the way before the Lord. And John, of course, did this by preaching. Paul described his ministry, Acts 19.4, by saying, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And if you think back to our, our time in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, John 1, John the Baptist sees Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was coming after him. This was the ministry of John, this messenger who was sent before the Lord to prepare the way before him. Wonderful and vital as John's ministry was, however, it was only a prelude, something that was much more glorious. And so the Lord says through the prophet Malachi, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So John is a messenger who prepares the way. What can this mean then but that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who came suddenly to his temple. What can this mean then but that the Lord Jesus Christ is this one who is the messenger of the covenant? Why is he called the messenger of the covenant? I think the explanation given by the German reformer Urbanus Regius was helpful when he said, for he was sent from the Father as a messenger of the great message that he might be the mediator of the New Testament or of the eternal covenant of grace which was made and confirmed by the precious blood and death of Christ. If this messenger had not been sent, and if he had not reconciled us, and in his own person wiped away our sins, we had tarried and perished in our sins, in death and in the wrath of God forever. But seeing that Christ is come, and has made and confirmed this testament, or league, by so great a price, we which believe in Christ have in Christ the messenger of the New Testament, Remission of our sins, everlasting righteousness, reconciliation with God, and life and salvation. This is why Christ is the, the messenger of the covenant. This is good news. This is the gospel that the Lord has come. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is true God eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who also in the fullness of time became man, was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that in him we might receive the adoption as sons. In his incarnation, Christ became the Son of Man so that we might become sons of God through faith in him. He is the, the messenger of the covenant. He's the one who inaugurates the new covenant by his blood so as to become the mediator, the one mediator between God and man. Or in the words of Hebrews 8.6, the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. And the result of this is what Peter said when he's preaching in Acts 10 to Cornelius, Acts 10.43. Through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Malachi says that the Lord they seek would come to his temple. And indeed he did, almost incognito. Most people there in the temple that day had no idea. What had happened? Our brother Stan read for us from Luke 2, our Lord's unexpected 
entry into the temple. After Mary's purification was over, they took Jesus up to the temple to present him to the Lord to offer the sacrifice. And there he was. The Lord had come into his temple. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And you'll recall how some of those who were in the temple that day were delighted in the messenger of the covenant. Simeon was there, that righteous and devout man who was looking for the consolation of Israel. And as Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms, he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Anna was there too, that godly woman who served night and day with prayers and fastings. She came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This was wonderful. The Lord whom they had sought had come into his temple, and people like Simeon and Anna delighted in the messenger of the covenant. But even on that blessed and happy day, Simeon had some rather somber words when he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. Or, to put it in the language of Malachi 3.2, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. The coming of the Lord into the temple was not something that was completely joyous all around. There was going to be some fallout. Simeon prophesied of this fallout. People in Malachi's day were asking, where is the God of justice? But their descendants in the first century, who had the same mindset as them, were not going to like it when the God of justice actually came. At that first coming into the temple, Simeon indicated that Jesus had come and was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And certainly we see this, even in Jesus, some of sub, uh, Jesus' subsequent comings to the temple. Right? You see the, the fall and the rise of some in Israel. Think of John 2. Jesus went into the temple there at the Passover. He saw the selling of the animals and the money changers in the temple precincts. He drove them out with a scourge of cords and said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. They were not all pleased with our Lord when he did that. Who can endure the day of his coming? He's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Not everyone was going to be happy when the God of justice actually did show up in his temple. Because he's like a smelter, a purifier of silver. In the purification of silver, the metal gets heated up and the impurities are separated from the pure metal. And I think we can see in Christ's ministry and work him doing this in two ways. For one, at his coming, he brings a division between those who believe in him and those who do not. He brings a division between those who love him and those who hate him. He spoke about this in Luke 12, 51, when he said, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I'll tell you no, but rather division. John the Baptist had said of him, Luke 3, 17, His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So on the one hand, Jesus brings purification and division between those who believe and those who do not, those who love him, those who hate him, these people thought it would be great for the Lord to come. They didn't realize that many of them would not endure his coming. And not only is Christ a purifier 
of the group, bringing division between those who believed and those who did not. Christ is also a purifier of individuals, a purifier of the individuals who believe. And so we find that in in verses 3 and 4, where it says, He will purify the sons of Levi and will refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And this was exactly the result of Christ's coming. The sons of Levi were purified. Now there's a sense in which this happened literally, in that many sons of Levi became believers in Christ. Barnabas, the missionary, companion of Paul, himself was a Levite, as we find in Acts 4.36. Luke tells us in Acts 6.7 that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They were putting their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins. Literal sons of Levi were being purified. And there's a broader sense in which all who come to Christ become Levites in the sense that we are now priests. And so John says in Revelation 1.6 that he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Or as Peter would say, 1 Peter 2.9, writing to believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if it perhaps seems too far-fetched for you to imagine that Gentile believers in Christ can be referred to as the sons of Levi, I would direct your attention to Isaiah 66, verses 20 and 21, where we see a picture of the nations being brought to the Lord at Jerusalem, and the Lord says he will take some of them for priests and for Levites. Take a look at Isaiah 66. And so Malachi says here that the Lord was going to come to his temple, purify the sons of Levi. And when the Lord purifies us as individuals, this is not always a pleasant experience, is it? When we become Christians, we forsake the world, the flesh, and the devil, we begin following Jesus. We have to die to an old way of life, receive new life, and learn a new way of life. On the one hand, this is, this is great and glorious because this is exactly what we want when we begin following Jesus. We want to leave behind a worthless way of life which we have been pursuing before and we want to follow after Jesus because we know that this is where life is to be found. We know this is the road to heaven to eternal life. But at the same time, being purified from our wickedness, learning to truly repent, can be a lot like being in a crucible. It can be like silver being refined in a refiner's fire. It's not always pleasant, but it is always for our good. And according to verse 3, the the purpose of this purification is so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And the result of this is found in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Now Malachi makes it very clear that Judah and Jerusalem were in trouble. He makes it very clear that the priesthood was in trouble. Chapter 2 makes that very clear. The Lord threatens to curse them. Chapter 2, verse 2, and says that he will spread refuse on their faces and on their feasts. This book makes it very clear that their offerings were unacceptable to the Lord. This is why the Lord had said back in chapter 1, verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. The point is, there was a great need 
for the sons of Levi to be purified. They were acting wickedly. There was a great need for a change in the kind of offerings that were being offered. Half-heartedly going through the motions and not even conforming to the letter of the law was not going to, was not going to cut it for the Lord. They were bringing these diseased animals to the Lord. The Lord was angry, and rightly so, at the whole thing. Yet, in his grace, the Lord promised to send the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to purify the people so that they could present offerings in righteousness. So they could do the exact opposite of what had all been going on here in Jerusalem at the time of Malachi. And then there is this promise that after this purification takes place, the offerings would be pleasing to the Lord. And thus it is that Peter writes to Christians, 1 Peter 2.5, and he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We offer acceptable sacrifices to God, not on our own, but through Christ. This is how the prophecy of Malachi is fulfilled. The offering will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years, because we... As living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord through Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the sacrifices of the new covenant are different than those of the old. The offerings on the altar have passed away. We do not offer bulls and goats and sheep and pigeons and turtle doves and grain offerings any longer. But yet, there are sacrifices for this holy priesthood of Christians to offer up. Sacrifices are spiritual, and through Christ they are acceptable to God. We bring the sacrifice of praise, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 16, which is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. And how does Paul say? He says they are acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1. These are the sacrifices that we bring and they are acceptable. They are pleasing to the Lord. And so, friends, as we, as we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time of the year, let's remember the, the seriousness of his coming. Let's remember the implication of Christ's coming. We have warm and perhaps sentimental feelings as we think of Blessed Mary giving birth to our Lord in Bethlehem. And such feelings are not necessarily bad or misplaced. But we need to remember that the coming of the Son of God into this world is a serious event with serious consequences for all of mankind. As we find here, who can endure the day of his coming? He's like a refiner's fire. Or, as Simeon said, he's appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He's the messenger of the covenant. And praise God, by his blood, he has inaugurated a better covenant, which is based on better promises. His coming is wonderful, but it is also sobering. He calls us to believe in him. He calls us to repent of our sins and to come to him so that we might be pure, saved by grace through faith, justified, counted righteous as a gift of his grace, yet along with the greatest grace that the world has ever known, the grace of the sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sins, Jesus also brings judgment. He's a refiner's fire. Again, John the Baptist says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And this will take place with finality at the end of the age when our Lord comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
So the day of salvation is now. The judgment is coming. And the question for each one of us is whether we will stumble over him because he's not the messenger we wanted or whether we will receive the messenger of the covenant as he is, believe in him, submit ourselves to him, and so be partakers of this covenant. To reject him is death and judgment. To receive him is salvation and eternal life. Please pray with me. Our Father, we give thanks for the glorious coming of the Lord, the glorious coming of this messenger of the covenant, this one who is the mediator of a better covenant, enacted on better promises. Lord, we pray that each one of us would not stumble over Christ, but that we would receive this messenger of the covenant, that we would submit to him as he purifies and smelts us, as he removes the dross from us. We pray that we would love him, that we would glory in him and in him alone. We praise you for your great mercy in which you sent him to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.